Welcome to the Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information about this podcast and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Genesis 1, we're going to be in uh, verse 24 um, through 31 is our text. Let me pray and, and we'll kind of jump right in. Jesus, we honor you. We celebrate you. We honor your word as fully inspired and errant. We ask that you would breathe on it this morning, that you would, by your spirit, apply it to our hearts. Lord, we ask that we would leave this morning changed with a new perspective and a new willingness to be obedient to your word. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, we're in our series in Genesis called Origins, and we're really, again, looking at the origin narrative that Moses provides, and we're trying to understand the worldview that Moses presents from that narrative. Again, we're not asking questions about how old the earth is, or evolution, or gap theory. We're not asking any of those questions. We're just asking from the text, what do you want us to know about life, about hope, about salvation, um, about what we're, about our purpose, our destiny, what we're created for? Um, those are our primary questions. Kaylin, would you sh- would you show this the picture that I put in there? Have you ever seen this picture before? Um, this is a young man named Otabenga. Um, I think this picture was like around 1906. Um, he was a pygmy. He was 411 from the Congo. His family was murdered in some kind of raid while he was out hunting. And then he was captured by slave traders. Long story short, he ends up in the States um, at, the world, at a world fair, and they were kind of showing off different people groups. Um, and then the owners of the Bronx Zoo offered to give him a job. And so he goes to the Bronx Zoo, and originally he's just taking care of the zoo, um, cleaning, and they kind of house him at the zoo. Um, but slowly, he, so he's 4'11", and you can't see in this picture, but his teeth are chipped. So he has sharp teeth. Um, it was kind of a ceremony thing that they, they chipped their teeth down. Um, he's 4'11", and they started to notice that the people who came to the zoo would pay more attention to, to Oda than the animals. And when Oda was clean, cleaning the zoo, the um, chimpanzees and the orangutans were really well trained, and so he liked to like play with them after, after hours. And slowly the management encouraged him to start spending more and more time in the display with the monkeys. And eventually, they, one day, they just kind of shifted where Oda was now a part of the display. And the point was is that that Oda was, um, they were trying to present him as a middle species between apes and humans. And so he would stand in the cage. They made him wear this outfit and hold this monkey. Um, and people would kind of mock him, stare at him, point. Um, and it was kind of a riot, kind of a big deal. And so what happens is there's this clash of worldviews that comes to play. And so I want to read to you a couple responses from African-American pastors. Again, this is the year like 19, the early 1900s. I think this is the year 1906. Um, I want to read to you some responses by African-American pastors. And then I'm going to read to you from an article by the New York Times. And I'm going to show you how worldviews are, are clashing all the time. Okay, so here's um, the Reverend James H. Gordon. Uh, his response, he said um, publicly, he said, Our race, we think, is depressed enough without exhibiting one of us with apes. We think we're worthy of being considered human beings with souls. 
the Reverend S.R. MacArthur um, made this statement publicly. He said, instead of making a beast of this little fellow, we should be putting him in school for the development of such powers as God gave him. And so these pastors are saying, this man has a soul. This man has potential. Rather than putting him on display, we should be putting him in school so that he can learn and he can grow and develop the God-given gifts that are in him. And then uh, the New York Times responded uh, with this statement. They said, as for Benga himself, he's probably enjoying himself as well as he could anywhere in his country. It's absurd, uh, absurd to make a moan over the imagined humiliation and degradation he's suffering. He says, pygmies are very low in the human scale. The idea that men are all much alike, except as they uh, have lacked opportunities for getting occasion of books, is now far out of date. So the New York Times responds in 1906 by saying that this idea that if we just educated this man, he could become developed, that's an out-of-date idea. And we know that this man is actually lower on the process of evolution. And so there's no problem with leaving him in this exhibit and treating him as if he's an animal. Clash of worldviews taking place. And so what's happening is these pastors are saying, no, this young man is an image bearer. This young man is marked with the image of God. And so what happens as things play out is um, the pastors get him to um, Lynchburg, Virginia, and they put him in school and they teach him to read. Um, but when World War I breaks out, uh, Oda decides that he thinks that he'll never be able to go home again and see his, see his community. And so he, they had fixed his teeth. He broke the caps off of his teeth and he borrowed a gun and shot himself in the heart. And so it just matters that we really understand what Moses intended by giving us the obviously divinely inspired narrative, what we understand um, what the scripture means by being created in God's image. And we stuff that thing down in our chest and we start operating with that revelation. Because, because there's, there's constantly this friction. And today it's really easy. It's really easy to still see this friction playing out. Abortion's the easiest one to talk about. Because, because 20 years ago, we were saying that babies in the womb, they're not babies, they're just fetuses. And scientists have told us clearly today that no, it's not just a fetus, that at conception, it has within, the baby has all of the makeup it needs to be considered human life. At conception, that's life. And so our proclamation is no, there, there's the image of God in that woman, and you can't just throw that away. And so let's read the text and we'll try to understand what it's, what it's trying to teach us and then we'll bring some application to it. So Genesis 1, starting in verse 24, we're backing up a little bit, but with purpose. Um, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. God made the beast of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Did you catch the comparison there? He made livestock according to their kinds. Reptiles according to their kinds. Birds according to their kinds. Let us make man in our image. After our likeness. 
Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every plant and yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. He goes on to say, I, I, uh, it, it says it was so in verse 31, it says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it's no longer good. Behold, it's very good. Every day it's good. It's good. It's good. And now God says, behold, it's very good. There was evening, morning, the sixth day. Genesis 2 gives us another little look at the, um, at the creation of man. And it says in verse 7 this, The Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. So God spoke, created, spoke, he created, spoke, he created. But then this verbiage is like God formed. Like he took time to form man, and then he breathed into his nostrils so that man would have life. Like there's extra care, extra intentionality. God kind of pauses. Gene Edwards wrote a book. Um, I was making sure that wasn't me, my wife calling. Um, is that me? No. Gene Edwards wrote a book um, in which he talked about the creation of man, and in Gene Edwards' um, kind of retelling of the story he said can you imagine all of the angels kind of surrounding and watching all the heavenly hosts watching to see what God would do next and God starts to form and God starts to mold and then he breathes and God said it is very good all of my creation is very good okay so let's start with just some basic observations then we'll pull some implications and try to get to application so just basic observations the creation narrative is working towards a pinnacle. Okay, so God creates, it's good. God creates, it's good. And as you read it, there should be like excitement coming in your heart. Like, what's God going to do? What's God doing next? And then God, uh, the, the pinnacle of his creation, the climax of the story is in this, that God made man after his own likeness. Not after the likeness of other creatures. God made man in his own image. Again, Genesis 2 gives us the idea that God didn't merely speak man into existence, although his voice was definitely involved, but that he molded with artistry and care and intentionality. Then he breathes into man's lungs. And God steps back to look at all of creation and says, Behold, it's very good after my kind and my image. So theologically, this idea is called the Imago Dei, and that's just Latin for the image of God. And so before we get into what the Imago Dei really even means, just from the narrative alone, just from reading it, we get the impression that man is very important to God. Therefore, man ought to be very important to you. So if man is the pinnacle of God's creation, then we ought to treat all men and women. Obviously, it says man and woman, God created them in the image of God. We treat men and woman, women with respect and with care. If God created them with intentionality, then we ought to treat them with intentionality. God calls man valuable. 
man is an expression of God's design. So just from looking at the text without drawing implications, we already come to the conclusion that we ought to treat man as special. So this is where debate comes in. What, is, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? What does it mean to be an image bearer? What does the Imago Dei really imply? These are questions that theologians yak about 24-7. I think on the very basis, what it means to be an image bearer is that you have the ability to reflect God. So you paint, if we paint a sunset, and we, we're, we're trying to, in some sense, describe what we're seeing. And so when people look at the painting of the sunset, what you're trying to do is you're trying to cause people to catch a glimpse of the beauty that you actually saw. So if you go to a city and there's statues, like we have statues of Martin Luther King everywhere. What are we trying to do by that statue? We're not, it's not, the statue itself is not Martin Luther King, but it's intended to cause you to remember him, to think about him. Oftentimes they have quotes so that you hear about his character. So at a very base level, images are are intended to cause you to reflect uh, on the image they're intended to bear. So man and woman have the ability to reflect God to the earth. So I'm suggesting um, that we learn to Allow a cocky, arrogant, rebellious 13 or 14 year old stand in front of us and not be so caught up in what our eyes see, but begin to ask the Holy Spirit, how does this person bear your image and what's locked inside of that person that's intended to cause the earth to go, God. That takes prophetic insight. That takes intentionality. That takes getting outside of your flesh and immediate reactions and stepping back with discernment and going, God, what did you make here? Help me, Holy Spirit, to treat this person as if there is purpose locked up in their bones and not just see them for how they're acting. Then again, just, just, just from the text, man is now created in the image of God and given responsibility to steward the earth. So man has the ability to organize. Man has the ability to create. Man has the ability to lead. Man has the ability to innovate. And, and, and so with that, we begin to, we can begin to deduct some things about man that, that is beyond the rest of the created order. That's beyond the rest of, um, Animals or whatever else walks the earth. So, um, just, just to show you, the beginning in the second century, uh, Irenaeus was already teaching that the Imago Dei was an essential part of the human makeup. He said it's something that every person, however righteous or however despicable, possesses. For the early church fathers, they, they considered the Mago Dei to be the evidence of the divine image of God, that there was human reason, like the ability to think rationally in man, in man. There was the ability to fellowship and commune in man. There was the ability to make moral decisions. And none of those things we hold to anything else in the animal kingdom. 
So don't suck a baby out of the mother's womb and throw it into the trash as if it's a cor- just, a, just a thing. Because within that baby is the ability to reason, make moral decisions. So let me just play with this for a second. People as image bearers have the ability to create, number one, obviously not in the same manner in which God creates. This is why it matters that we talked about God being outside of time, space, and matter. We are locked under time, space, and matter. God's outside. But man has the ability to create. Man alone has the ability to write a melody, lo- a melody line or a piece of poetry that would move you to a place of tears. That when you listen to music and you are incredibly emotionally moved, that there should be a reflection, a moment in which you say, how did God give that person that gift to be able to create in that way? And then your mind should go, God, you're good. If people can write melody lines to move you to tears, only imagine what God can write. Man can paint and create art and sculptures in ways that other created beings can't. And again, those sculptures and those pieces of art, they're expressions of creativity that should cause you to reflect on how creative our God is. Man bears His image. The ability to tell stories, man alone has. To communicate, like, like narratives. I love C.S. Lewis, all of it. I like the kids' books and all. I love the Narnias. And as you read the Narnias and you start to consider Aslan and you start to uh, think about the sacrifice that Aslan goes into, my mind starts to go, C.S. Lewis was brilliant. And then I go, God, what the gift that you gave the man. And then I reflect on what C.S. Lewis is trying to teach me through his writings. And I go, God, you love me with the perfect sacrificial love. Have you guys heard this movie, A Quiet Place? Have you seen this movie, A Quiet Place? I'm not necessarily recommending, but I saw it in the theaters. You know what I'm talking about? It's the one that's like quiet the whole time. It's kind of creepy. Super creepy. The whole movie is like quiet, and there's like six lines in the movie. Um, but the plot line essentially is this. Or there's some aliens that can hear things, and if you talk, they're going to kill you, whatever. I'm watching the movie, and the, the intent of the entire movie is that this man loves his kids so much that he sacrifices himself for his kids. That's the plot line of the movie. And it's like incredibly creative. I'm driving home like kind of creeped out still. And I'm talking to God. And this is what creation, this, this gift's meant to do. I'm talking to God and I'm going, man, that guy was brilliant, God. And then I was going, wait, like that was a reflection of how you love us. And then I'm going, you, you give men gifts to be able to write and create. And like this guy's ideas are produced in film. And I'm sitting down watching all of his thought life. Like the things that he dreamed about, like spilled out on film. And then his thought life spilled out on films, causing me to reflect on the way that you love me so much like a good father. And I'm, I'm all of a sudden in entering into worship because this man's bearing God's image, whether he knows it or not. Whether he is aware of the fact that the story he wrote and the film he made reflects a side of God and the creativity of God. Whether he even knows that or not, I'm entering into worship because of it. So you treat a 13-year-old with a rebellious attitude as if there are gifts inside of that thing that could change the face of the earth. There are gifts inside of that young rebellious girl that could cause people to stop and recognize how magnificent God is. 
that 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 child may be able to tell stories the way C.S. Lewis did that would communicate the gospel message that the blood of Jesus would wash us of all of our iniquity in ways that no one else has ever communicated the story before. So the Mago Day, in its all of its fullness, should change the way that you treat people. Next, we have the ability to communicate, to fellowship, to have relationship with people that, that no other created being has. We have the ability to walk in covenantal relationship with God. God does not have a covenantal relationship that's held tightly, whatever, with animals. Like God has a covenantal relationship with human beings. So every human being that walks before you has the potential of carrying out a covenantal relationship with God. People have the ability to encourage, to stir on, to correct and teach in a way that no other created being does. And so again, you've got an 18 or 19 year old kid who's convicted of whatever, gets out of jail, and everyone in society wants to say this kid is trash. But this kid might have locked inside of his bones the gift to teach this word and communicate this word and encourage people and draw people to Christ because that kid, no matter how he's acted, he's still carrying around in him an image of God. There's something in there. Maybe he has an innovative gift. Maybe he has the ability, the mind, the insight to cure cancer. Maybe he has the calling to relieve the world of suffering. Maybe there's another missionary inside those bones. And we've got to have enough foresight and enough. We need to reflect enough upon this text that when people walk past us, we don't see what the enemy's displaying. Because sin has marred the image of God in us. And because of sin and because of the fall of man, there's a marred image of God standing before you. And you can stop and you could say, oh, I see all of your imperfections. Or you could say, no, I know a gospel message that would call that, cause that marred image to be born again. And, and, and there's a process that would cause that man to begin to reflect God again. And so I refuse to allow the enemy to mar the image and convince me that that's all that's there. Man alone has that ability to communicate, to love people, to encourage, to teach, to spur people on. People, in a unique way, are the, this is again a part of the Imago Dei. People, in a unique way, are the only beings that can really recognize beauty, worth, goodness, Righteousness, justice, my dog is not frustrated with abortion. It, my dog can't, I can't get my dog to poop outside. It, it can't recognize righteousness and injustice. For some reason, the thing thinks it needs to sleep outside and poop in the house, and I'm trying to get it in reverse. When animals murder, we don't put them on trial. 
Because you, whether you like it or not, have a unique ability to perceive justice. You have morality written in your bones. There's a God-given standard that's in you. And we talked about this before. If I told my daughter that we were going to kill somebody, she doesn't understand the Imago Dei. She doesn't understand the scriptural teachings, but she knows that's wrong. Because in you is written the image of God. And again, we talked the first week we discussed this passage, we talked about the fact that in our culture, we've bought a lie that there are no absolute truths. And what comes along with the lie that there are no absolute truths, remember we talked about relativism and the idea that what's true for you might not be true for me. And that's not the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative supports absolute truth. Because there are absolute truths, we believe in absolute morality. So murder is wrong always. Adultery is never okay. We alone have the unique ability to stand upon Scripture and proclaim to our earth, communicate to our nation what righteousness is. If I have, and I don't mean this to be disrespectful at all, this is just worldview stuff. If I have a friend who's an atheist who's really frustrated with racism, say they prescribe to evolutionary theory, they're very frustrated with racism. I can say to that person, I am also very frustrated with racism. But for you, natural selection should be somewhat of an ethic. You don't have the ability to stand on your worldview and say it's wrong to treat people of different races less than. But I, from Scripture, can stand on my worldview and say no matter what color the person is, they're marked with the image of God, and there are certain God-given rights given they deserve respect. You, you can't say that from your worldview. I can say that from my worldview. Because we believe in absolute moralities. And man alone has the ability to communicate, to perceive absolute morality. And so here, if you just give me a minute, I'm going to wrap this up shortly. Here in the Imago Dei, we get the seeds of the New Testament idea that love becomes the chief ethic. That all of the law is wrapped up in this. Love God with all of your being and love your neighbor as yourself. Why does it matter that you love your neighbor as yourself? Why doesn't God just wipe us out in the flood and just give up? Because we're already catching in the early chapters of Genesis that God has placed a unique stamp on mankind. And God values that stamp. So much so that he would send Jesus to fix the fact that we're marred and broken. Jesus would bear our punishment. So that we could be born again into the likeness and image of God. So here, so James says things like this. True religion that the Father considers pure and faultless is this. That you would love the orphan and the widow and their distress and not be polluted by the world. So I used to teach this all the time. James says that true religion is not just abstaining from evil. There's a do before there's a don't. True religion is to take care of the orphan and the widow in their distress and then abstain from the things of the world. So true religion, according to James, ex expressed is that you would care for every being, every image bearer, no matter their current state. It's the Christianity's responsibility and Christianity has led the way with relieving suffering for its entire history. And it's still our responsibility to relieve suffering. 
We believe, we alone believe that from Scripture, that no matter if the kid's parents walked out of them or not, if the kid's parents died or if the kid's parents just couldn't take care of them, the kid is still an image bearer. And we bear the responsibility to care for that kid. And when a woman's husband passed, we step in and we, because, because that woman's an image bearer. She matters. People matter to us because they matter to God in a unique way, a very unique way. So the idea of loving your neighbor, Jesus' thing of saying that, that love is the chief ethic. You love God first and then love people. That's rooted back into this thing that every person, remember them saying to Jesus, who is my neighbor? And he tells the story of the good Samaritan. The religious people walk back right by the person who's broken and robbed, but the Samaritan stops. And the point of the, the parable is this, that whoever's in front of you is your neighbor. And Samaritans, the people you hate, can be better neighbors than your religious people if they stop and care for people. Because it doesn't matter who stands before you, they're an image bearer. And we, as a church, I'm suggesting that we just avoid any spiritual posture that says we are going to push other people down in order to exalt ourselves. We don't believe in salvation through degradation. We don't have to, we don't have to trash any community. We don't have to talk about we, we need to preach the gospel, obviously, to our community, but we don't put our airs on any, our, our crosshairs on anybody and say, you're less than so that we feel better than. That's not our goal. I'm, I'm not saved by putting other people down. I'm saved because God came down and wore my punishment on his back, and there's a blood, man. There's a stinking blood that washed me. I don't need to put anybody down for salvation. And my last point, and I'm going to wrap this up quickly. Because we have the unique ability to perceive righteousness, goodness, and beauty in a way that no other being in the animal kingdom can, we also have a unique ability to worship. Man alone can worship God for all of his beauty and worth. And and obviously, we can't fully grasp all of God's greatness, but we can grasp it more so than my dog who can't poop outside. So man has the unique ability and calling to offer up worship. So now to murder that baby in the womb is not only to rob an image bearer, it's also to rob God of potential worship. For me as a minister and you as the church of God to act in such a way that's arrogant and to, and to repel the world through our hyper-spirituality and our bitterness or whatever you want to call it, we are through our arrogance robbing God of potential worship. Because the people that walk around here, that live in this community, whether they're currently worshiping God or not, they have the image of God and the unique ability to perceive His goodness, to receive the gospel, and to respond with holy, holy, holy. So lastly... Who does this apply to is the next question. If the image of God in man is the fact that we can bear and reflect him, it is, it is that we have responsibility to take dominion of the earth, and it is that we can create, that we can fellowship and commune and courage, that we can worship. If that's what all of the image of God is, the next logical question is who does it apply to? And so I just want to do a quick skim through the scriptures. Um, Genesis 9-6 says this. Do you have that or no? No, you don't have it. It's fine. Genesis 9-6 says that whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For the image of God, in the image of God, has God made mankind. So God says that whoever sheds human blood, 
disrespects the image of God. So human blood, there's a start, human blood. Genesis 12, 13, God tells Abraham that through him all the nations of the earth should be blessed. So that means that every nation is now in, the, in God's crosshairs. Matthew 20, I'm just skimming, Matthew 28, 19, Jesus says to the disciples, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. So Jesus now is saying, all nations are your goal. You go and preach this gospel to all nations, every people, every color. And listen to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9. After these things, John says, I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation, all tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in hands, and they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So through just a brief little skim of Scripture, what we come to is that all humans, all nations, every tribe, tongue, every color, image of God. All people groups, image of God. Therefore, we believe the gospel is for all people groups, our community, and to the ends of the earth. Remember the Acts 1-8 commission, to the uttermost, to the ends of the earth. Now, what I'm suggesting that we do is that we bring that down from just people groups because most of us, we can, we can confer that the gospel is to Africans, it is to Hispanics, it is to the Middle East. We can all agree that the gospel is to Chinese. But for some reason, we're, we're good with the gospel being to people groups, but we're not always good at bringing it down to individuals. So now the gospel is to that family member that 24-7 is causing problems. And the gospel is to your gossiping sister. And the gospel is to that kid that's bagging your groceries that has zero customer service. The gospel's to the junkie. The gospel's to the prostitute. The gospel's to the downtrodden. The gospel's to the rich, to the poor, to the working middle class. The gospel's to or towards the mentally ill, the mentally handicapped, the physically impaired. The orphan, the widow, the gospel is to every single individual that stands before you because every person is an image bearer. They bear within them the image of God. And now we're going to talk about sin. We're going to talk about the fact that that image is marred. But the beauty of this message is that Jesus handled that. So in conclusion, all people have the unique ability to reflect God, relieve suffering, fight for justice, to worship. They might not be there yet, but the potential is there. What Reverend James Gordon was saying about uh, Otabango was that he's a 411 pygmy in a, in a cage, but, but that young man is an image bearer. There's potential there. So Paul says in Colossians 3.10, he says that uh, you can now, because of the cross, you can put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Remember Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God. That we are marred because of sin, but God sent his exact image in Jesus. Jesus put on flesh the exact, the image of the invisible God. The, the image of God, the perfect image, steps foot on earth again. 
And he extends to us through his blood the opportunity, the unique opportunity in him alone. And this is why he can say that I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody else. There is no other Buddha, Muhammad, no other religious leader who was the unique image of God who could give you the opportunity to step back into your true image and calling. Jesus alone. And then Paul says, because of what Jesus has did, you should put off the old man and put on the new man, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its creator, in the likeness of the image of God. So, and just really basic, what we can infer from Genesis is that God put a unique stamp on all people, that all people have potential in their bones, no matter what color, socioeconomic class, what disability, what background. There's, there's potential there that God will deliver us through Jesus and offer us new life. And that in Jesus we can begin to fully reflect God to the earth again. We can step back into our dominion, into our calling to reflect the goodness of God to the earth. And in Jesus alone. Thank you for listening to this Sunday's sermon. Be sure to visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources.